want you to stand with us as we sing a couple songs this morning. If you get hit by a leaf in the head, uh, you win a prize. It's a, you win the leaf, but <laughs> if you catch it, oh, if you catch the leaf, yeah. <laughs> what a beautiful morning. What a beautiful place to be, and uh, just what a neat thing. making jokes about wind and leaves falling, right? <clears throat> oh, someone's running to get clips. We'll see if they uh, make it in time here. This song is not out of They might all be out of order up here. I believe we're More Than Conquerors is next, right? Okay, good. <laughs> Just wanted to make sure. <clears throat> oh, hey. Wow. This is a service. This guy's got everything. <coughs> you know, More Than Conquerors, it's it's a fun song. I did, uh, in case you're like a person that sings songs and don't look at the words, I did change a couple words, so you might want to actually read the words this time as you're going through it. But um, More Than Conquerors is just a, uh, a, 
a wonderful song that reminds us that in Christ we can do all things, and and it's through His conquering power that we're able to do these things. So just looking to Him as our source and our strength. Father, you are you are the 
the one that gives us strength. You're the one that goes, uh, goes with us, and you go before us, and you go behind us. And we are just thankful that you provide for us all the things that are needed for life and for godliness. Lord, we pray and ask that this morning you would allow our hearts and our minds and our souls to be encouraged, uh, challenged, and changed by your word that's preached to this morning. We just ask this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Let me have a seat, and we'll have our scripture reading come up. I'm Luke, and uh, today's scripture reading is 2 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence and lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Thank you, Luke. Hey, good morning, everybody. Well, it's once again for the third straight week, it's good to be a part of the Oak Grove family. It is always good to be here, and what a beautiful morning. I mean, you guys are in the spit zone, I'm telling you right now. <laughs> They're a little close to me. Uh, you know, one of the things we have to do in, in school now is um, in order to have our students, we wear masks, kids wear masks. We have to rotate as teachers in our junior high classrooms. All the kids stay put, and we rotate from class to class. So we have a little rolling podium, and after period one's over, we take our podium and roll to period two and roll to period three. And, but we, I can't wear a mask. Uh, I figure I have my own face covering. Uh, this is my COVID catcher. But one, one of the things that I do is I wear a shield. And the shield is great, but I spit so much, man. I got to clean that sucker every period, and I got to wipe it down. Be able to see through any a windshield wiper or something, but um, what a morning! I mean, just sitting in the little breeze and the leaves falling, and uh, what a beautiful morning to be in God's Word and God's creation of this place. Uh, feel free to leave if the shade moves, move with it. That's not a problem. Um, but those of you that don't know me, I'm Patrick Bloom, and I am a school teacher. That's how I pay bills. Um, I mess with kids. 14-year-olds on a daily basis, and it is a, a great joy. One of the things that we do right now, we're literally in the middle of one of the novels that I read with my kids is Lois Lowry's The Giver. And I'm not sure if you've read this dystopian novel. There are many, but The Giver is quite a trip. And um, 
course, it's about creating a community of sameness and no diversity and, and control and, um, you know, to have this utopian society, which just really isn't utopian at all. But one of the things that I literally will be asking my eighth graders to ponder this week and to write about is this idea of when, when does adulthood begin? When are you actually an adult? And I think you get various answers from various people a lot of times. Um, how would you respond? I mean, legally, a person is an adult when they have reached the age of what's called the age of majority, which in most states is 18, a couple are 19. I think Mississippi's even the age of 21. That is adulthood when you reach the age of majority. You're no longer a minor at 18. I googled, at what point are you considered an adult? And the answer came across as, well, an appropriate age to consider a person of adult is probably 21 years old. Probably 21 years old. Most at this age are the parents' house, they're working, they're handling their own finances, they're driving, etc. So, but I always like to look at what psychologists have to say, and one of them is in... Um, a 2013 article written by a psychologist named Dr. Robert Firestone. And he doesn't give an age, but he gives six aspects of adulthood or six characteristics of when you finally reach the age of adulthood. And Dr. Robert Firestone says, number one, well, adults, you, you have this sense of rationality. Okay, So you can distinguish between the feeling process and the intellect, and you usually respond out of intellect, whereas Children just respond by feeling. So that's one. Number two, they formulate and implement goals. Okay? Number three, they seek equality in relationships where they have the ability to give and take, whereas kids just take. By definition, I'm probably still a kid because I like to take, <laughs> to be honest. But numbers four and five are probably my favorite uh, only because numbers four and five I. It just boggles my mind. He says, to achieve adulthood, this, this idea of active versus passive, adults are proactive and self-assertive rather than passive and dependent. He says, they, feel, they don't feel, listen to this, they don't feel victimized by life or complain or dump their problems on other people. Are there any adults <laughs> Our world today, probably as w most uh, as uh, or equally in my favorite category that doctor says is they're non-defensive and they have this sense of openness. They do not offhandedly disagree with negative commentary to feedback. They welcome constructive criticism and are not defensive or react angrily to others' opinions. Wow. Now, I don't often agree with psychologists today, but I like this guy. Uh, and based on his definitions, the majority of our elected representatives and media today aren't adults. <laughs> so now we have perspective, okay? A definition I read years ago, and it stuck with me, and I've used it with my own kids, is when, when my life stops allowing your life to exist, then you're an adult. Think about that for a moment. And I think I shared this one time with you before. I remember when Jared, a few years ago, wanted to go to the coast with his buddies. 
said, Dad, I want to go camping with my, my baseball buddies from Shasta College. And I said, all right, what, who's the family that's going? Well, there's not a family, Dad. It's just we're all 18. We're all adults. <laughs> oh, did we have a conversation after that one? <laughs> yeah. We're he en- he enjoyed thinking about the coast <laughs> while he was in his bedroom doing his homework. <laughs> well, what's my point? I think, see, here's Dr. Bloom's assessment. This, not my dad, <laughs> although he would probably concur. It's, I think there's a natural tendency to define certain concepts, certain ideas, um, within the construct of our own lives. And, and what I mean is that we naturally tend to default to defining roles in our lives as what's most convenient to us or what leads to the path of what least resistance, right? I think there's these things, things that satisfy our own sense of boundaries of right and wrong or our own sense of fairness is that and so we live our lives in this sense of well yeah that might be true but it just doesn't quite fit my lifestyle it doesn't quite fit my sense of fairness or my social construct or my right and wrong you know and i think that's true i mean you think about you might be a footloose family no dancing footloose you're not movie watchers. Okay, there's another construct. You don't go to movies. Footloose, right? You don't go to da- you don't dance. Why? Because dancing leads to drinking. Dancing leads to smoking. Dancing leads to other extracurricular activities. Dancing, you might be the footloose family. You might be a family that, well, hey, you're in the camp of once you're 18, you're out of the house. You can do whatever you want, right? No, you got to do what I do. You're living under my roof, my rules, and you're 18, you can leave. You might be from the camp of no dating until you're 16. Or I'm raising a girl now. No dating until you're 27. <laughs> I mean, you know. But see, I, we, we're all so naturally prone to define life based on our circumstance. And for the Christian, the spiritual battle is to combat this fleshly tendency when we come to the Word of God. And I'm going to explain this to you. I'm going to unpack it as we look at our text this morning. But I'm going to be really brutally honest with you. And not that I wouldn't be before, but I've never been one to be known as not being straightforward or forthright. And it's to a fault because it's usually maybe out of my own pride or arrogance and maybe not come across the right way. So try to listen to the message from the scriptures and not the messenger But I think what really truly breaks my heart is a brand of Christianity today that falls short of submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in every aspect of our lives. I mean, to me, the common denominator in all of that is this false doctrine, a a, a false teaching, an interpretation. And, and I kind of, I want to be clear 
My desire to speak on false teaching as Paul does today is not so much the blatant heresy that we see in today's churches and the false apostles and some of the stuff that just makes us cringe in the church. We just can repel that. That's pretty easy. But I think in many cases, that type of false teaching is, is really easily recognizable. But I, I, I really believe that the deception in the church today, and, and maybe always, but, uh, but I think it's certainly magnified because of technology today, because of the ease and the speed at which we can access information and but I think what happens, there's this subtle shift that's taken place within Christianity. And, and, and I think you can all see it and recognize it. And if you really are honest with yourselves, it might even be taking place in your own heart and in your own homes. But there's this shift that realigns biblical truth really to meet our sense of what is maybe right or our natural desire to compromise in a way that makes God's standards more palatable to us or, or maybe more easily acceptable. And it's that path of least resistance. Yeah, God's word says this, but it's just going to lean a little bit differently. And so my thoughts as we head into this text this morning by way of introduction are these. Um, and I want this to be clear but I want it to be out of love and with a deep desire that we've got to take God's word as the standard. And I know we all would confess to that, but we practically don't live out that standard of righteousness, not just because we're prone to sin, but because we just want to tweak God's word to make it a little easier to hold on to, to grasp, to manage, so we can have this sense of, hey, I'm, I, I'm doing okay. But I will tell you, a man confessed the other day that he says, I, I just don't love my wife anymore. I mean, I, mean I, I love her, but I just don't have feelings for her. Just don't get me wrong, I do love her, but I would rather do my own thing than spend time with my wife. And he said, and honestly, what she says bugs me now, and it never used to. Another husband and his wife are struggling mightily in their marriage. Divorce is so common, it's even hit my own family and my wife's family. Several families raising their kids that are an absolute mess in rebellion against God and their moms and dads. Young people deciding to live together before marriage. A 12-year-old diagnosed with adolescent depression. And you know what? I've just described for you families in my little church in Cottonwood. In church. This isn't something that I googled to try to make a point. 
You know, others in our own little church party are so full of pride in their self-righteous, legalistic, works-oriented faith that they look down upon others who aren't the same. The pride, the destructive nature of relationships within family, within one another's lives, it is, it is, it, it is sickening, but that is standard. That seems to be status quo in the body of Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, I mean, it's easy. It is easy to look on the outside at the world today, at families and the church bodies and point fingers at false teachers leading people astray. But I'm telling you, we must look within and recognize how sound biblical doctrine is being rebranded to a gospel that is, as verse 5 says, quote, powerless to destroy the speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. How is it that Barna, five years ago, can pull and reveal that 92% of adults actually believe that Jesus was a real person, but 56% believe that he was, in fact, God. Okay, I could get that. I wrap my brain. That's fine. I understand. Jesus is a real person, but I don't believe he was God. Okay? Half of the population. But what's disturbing is that 62% of adults who stated they have made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ, half of those, 52% of those, agree that when Jesus lived on earth, he committed sin just like any other human being. How can anyone who has made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ deny his deity and deny his sinlessness? I'll tell you why. It's because the great deceiver is at work. This is how the angel of light operates. This is how the one who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour works in this world in the lives of those who make professions of Jesus Christ. What Paul writes to the Corinthian church in approximately A.D. 55, and we looked at the historical content two weeks ago as we've been going through this passage, could not really be more applicable today. So I want to look at our text once again in light of this and see how this text is going to jump off the page. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And let's specifically look at verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For our weapons of warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So let's pray together before we look and see what God would teach us this morning. Father, we thank you. We praise your holy name this morning. Thy word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path when we understand it and apply it appropriately. Lord, give us extra wisdom. Break down the scales of our eyes and soften the soil of our hearts 
to receive the truths so that we can better be a soldier in the war against the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places. Lord, illuminate your word today and help us all to live in in more clear obedience, in better submission to the Lordship of Christ until you return or take us home. And we thank you for your spirit and your indwelling and your power in your word. And we look forward to what you're going to do in Christ's name. Amen. So in verse 2, just by way of review quickly, the false teachers in Corinth accused Paul of walking in the flesh, literally walking in that sense of humanity, that he walked in um, immorality, that he walked in greed, that he walked in just corruption, that he was not a true apostle at all. He was just a fraud. And so they attacked his apostolic credentials because they said, you're just a fleshly man like anybody else, and you have no right to your brand of truth as we do. And so they were attacking um, Paul's credibility by saying he walked in the flesh. And so playing on this idea, once again, he seems to be kind of this sarcastic response. And he does say, well, yeah, I, I do walk in the flesh. But in a physical sense, of course, we all do. I mean, he was a man. But he started the book of 2 Corinthians, if you remember reading through this in this last week as you're studying through the scriptures um, in the year. He denied the false charge that he was corrupt. In the first chapter in verse 12, he says, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. So he denies this accusation, but yet he also admits that I do walk in the flesh. He says in chapter 4, verse 7, I am an earthen vessel. And in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, I am this earthly tent. And in 4.16, he affirms that his outer man's decaying. He has no problem with recognizing he is a human being. But in Galatians chapter 5, In verse 16 and 25, he says, however, I do walk by the Spirit and not satisfy the desire of the flesh. And since I live by the Spirit, I walk by the Spirit. And we can and should do the same. So again, in verse 4 now, Paul opens up and he says, For our weapons of warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful. This war... This word warfare, stratuomai, and it means to engage in battle. It, it means to serve as a soldier. And we know that all of us as believers are soldiers in God's army. We're soldiers in the spiritual war against the kingdom of darkness, right? Ephesians 6.12 defines that. For our battle is not against flesh and blood. But it is against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We, we know that. But, so we're engaged in this warfare on a spiritual level. So how do we attack it? Well, Paul does say you put on the full armor. But all of the pieces of armor, if you think about it, it all are based on the word of God, the word of truth, the 
the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, right? Um, living a righteous life by God's standard. Hearing comes by faith. You know, we have the shield of faith. Hearing comes by faith and um, and by hearing the word of truth. So even our shield that combats the flaming arrows of the evil one is this faith based on the truth of the scripture, the belt of truth. We, we know this, that this is the truth, and this is our sword, and we're going to look at it in a moment. But, but Satan's greatest weapon is not blatant evil. It is just, it's not. It's not abject, blatant darkness and evil as we would define it. Listen to the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 17 and verse 9. Mankind's heart is deceitful above all things and what? Desperately wicked. Satan's greatest evil in this world, I'm convinced, is to malign the word of God. How did he deceive Eve? Well, he, God really didn't mean you'd die. How did he tempt Jesus? If you are the son of God, he attacked the very credibility and words of God. He simply and subtly says, does God really mean that? See, think about man is already, we are already creatures with a a, a heart that is deceitful above all else. And we're desperately wicked. So it is not hard for us to be deceived. It's our natural fleshly condition. So as believers, this is our spiritual battlefield. Paul is engaged in a spiritual war for the preservation of the truth. And you can't fight that battle with human weapons. Paul says in verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but what? Divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We don't fight with weapons of flesh, but they're divinely powerful weapons. Literally translated powerful unto God. Our weapons, they're from God. And he says it like this in chapter 6, verse 7. If you take notes and you have little margins in your Bible, write this as a cross-reference. In chapter 6, verse 7 of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, It's the word of truth, the power of God, the weapons of righteousness. It's the word of truth, the power of God, the weapons of righteousness. I mean, We can't expect to engage in this battle, as one commentator puts it. He says, with human ingenuity, with human ideology, with human methodology, nor with human wisdom, reason, plans, or organizations. So where do you turn when your 12-year-old daughter is depressed and you are a family that's in the church? You want to hear something terrifying? There's been a gigantic, exponential increase in depression 
and anxiety for American teenagers, which really truly began about 2011 to 2013. Statistically, 100,000 girls a year were admitted to hospitals for cutting themselves or harming themselves. And this data was, in, was very, very consistent from year in and year out, okay, until 2011. And in 2011, for girls ages 15 to 19, those admitted to the hospital for cutting or harming themselves because they were depressed or anxious rose 62% in one year. And it rose 189% for those 10 to 13. 10 and 11 and 12 year olds. Depressed and anxious and nowhere to turn but to harm themselves. Preteens. And what's even scarier for suicide it was up in 70% for girls ages 15 to 19 from all the previous years and 151% for 10, 11, 12-year-olds. Research indicates that this pattern points directly to, you know where I'm going? Cell phones, social media. The advent of social media when it came out in 2009 the Gen Z kids born in 1996-97, those are the kids that is the first generation to have cell phones, mobile devices with social media by the time they're in junior high. And, and these, the, the amount of desperation and depression and anxiety skyrocketed, not just in teens, but in preteens. An entire generation is now more depressed and more anxious than ever before. Again, I ask, what do you do with your 12-year-old girl and your family in the church when they're depressed? Do you take them to a doctor? Do you take them to a psychologist? And I mean no offense, and I mean not to be derogatory in any way, but my heart aches because the natural tendency for us is to do what? It must be a problem that is outside there that we can't do anything about or must be physiological, it must be mental disorder, but my goodness, do we take her to a doctor or do you take her to the word of truth, the power of God, the weapons of righteousness? You take her to Psalm 139. And you tell her that God formed her and knit her together in her mother's womb for a purpose and that her thoughts are precious to her creator. You take her to 1 John 4, 18 because there is no fear in love and perfect love does what? It casts out fear and anxiety. You take her to Philippians 4 as a Christian parent when she feels anxious and worried, and you tell her to be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving you present your requests of God. And what's going to happen? The peace of God which passes all understanding is going to guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. You take her out and you serve other people. 
Because Acts 20.35 says it is more blessed to give than receive. You take her to Matthew 5. And you tell her that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. So you hunger for right things, right behavior, right attitude. So you take her to John 16.33 and tell her that, yeah, honey, in this world you will have trouble. But what? Be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. You take it to Jeremiah 29, 11, because God says he has a plan for a hope and a future for you. Sorry, this happens to be a girl. It's one of my students. So I'm going to get It breaks my heart. <clears throat> I, I, like, I like to steal this old guy's quote that says, in my humble but accurate opinion, the great deceiver has so infiltrated our church, has so infiltrated our Christianity that we don't seem to believe that the Bible is sufficient for all of life and godliness. Well, it's sufficient to save, but it's not quite sufficient enough for the deep issues in life. We somehow fail to recognize, as the, a Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, 3, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and his own excellence. By the knowledge of him, that is the word of God. He has given us everything we need for life and godliness to successfully fight this spiritual war requires weapons from a heavenly arsenal that as paul says are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses you see and this is a really interesting word this word fortress I want to take a couple of points from here. It's usually only one time in the New Testament. That's it. One time. And this term, ahurama, it's a great term. And it would have been conveyed to the New Testament reader the thought of a formidable stronghold or a castle. I would love to go to Israel at some point in time and, and be able to just walk and see and experience. But all I can do is Google image for now. But in Corinth, like most major cities in Greece, located on a mountain near the city was what was called this fortified citadel, the Acropolis. It was up on Table Rock. And you can see it, and it just stands out. And it's just this unbelievable fortress. And it would have been a place for when the city was under attack by an enemy, they would all have gone. And, and so it was this impregnable position of elevation where you could defend yourself successfully. Okay, so you get this idea. This is fortress. And this term was also used to refer to a prison, this impenetrable fortress. So synonymous with this word prison. And if you think about it, people under siege who are taking refuge in a 
prison, I mean, in a fortress, are literally what? They're kind of imprisoned. They're stuck there. They can't get out because the enemy's there. And the word also is synonymous with the word tomb. A tomb. Uh, So Paul goes on to elaborate or define what these fortresses are. These prisons or these tombs, if you will. He says they are a formidable stronghold and in a spiritual sense, okay, not in a physical sense. But who is imprisoned in these strongholds? Sinners, right? And the only way to break, break free from citadel or a stronghold of sin is john 8 32 you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free paul defines verse 5 what needs to be destroyed look at verse 5 he says we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing that word speculation it's a general term and it means any and all human philosophy, wisdom, ideology, viewpoint. It's the same word used in Romans 12, 1, when Paul says, I mean, Romans 1, 21, for even though they knew God, they, what? They did not honor him as God or give thanks, and they became futile in their speculations, their philosophy, their human wisdom, their viewpoint, and their foolish heart was darkened. They became futile. They they became literally incapable of producing a useful result. And their their heart was darkened. This idea of speculation. The battle is is with false ideologies of mankind. That's what Paul's speaking to. And and it's definitely not um, this blatantly false, black and white, evil good. There's this wisdom and creativity and ingenuity and seemingly sound advice but but you got to make make no mistake the source is the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places and if you carry this analogy that's using regarding destroying fortresses these are doomed souls that are inside their fortress of ideas which become what it they become their prison and which eventually becomes what? Their tomb. Unless they're delivered from those by the truth. You see, Paul further defines sinner strongholds in verse 5, where he says, we're destroying speculations and every lofty thing. And that's a term that basically refers to just worldly wisdom elevated lofty elevated above all else elevated as truth first corinthians three twenty, he calls them the reasonings of the wise you know and, and if you haven't made the connection yet this spiritual battle i believe is a battle for the minds of people and that's why paul writes in 12 1 and 2 of romans be transformed by the renewing of your mind Paul knows a little bit about that, doesn't he? In Acts 26, he says, Zeal caused me to do many hostile things in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul used to persecute the church. Ruthlessly and relentlessly, beyond measure, he tried to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. 
But on the Damascus road, his fortress was crumbled. And he was led captive to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what do we do? What's our objective? Well, it's to change how we think. And that doesn't just happen at the moment of salvation. That's the beginning. That's a launching pad to a a sanctified life. Verse 5 concludes, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So in order to do so, the proper weapon is necessary to destroy false religion, false teaching, worldly philosophy, and, and wisdom, and only one weapon will suffice. And Paul says it's the truth. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, the glory of the one only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The only offensive weapon in the armor of God is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, right? Spiritual warfare is a battle of the mind. And we assault these strongholds, we assault the fortress, the speculations and every lofty thing by taking them captive, every thought to obedience to Christ. And I love this term, taking captive, aikamalitizo, I'm a Greek scholar, you can tell. It literally means, it literally means to take captive with a spear. And so we use God's truth, we smash the enemy's fortresses, and we take captive the prisoners to set free, ultimately, to the subjection of Jesus Christ. Jude put it in verse 23, he says, snatching them out of the fire. So after being taken prisoner by the Lord Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road, Paul immediately asked, Lord, what do I do? What do you want me to do? Obedience, submission. The word of God in Acts 6-7 kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. A great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Victory in battle can only happen when we're proficient at wielding the sword of the Spirit. It is impossible to fight It is impossible to be engaged with the enemy without knowing the truth. Only the power of God's truth can destroy speculations, ideologies, worldly philosophies. I began, I think, this morning with maybe a bit of a a lament. My heart is frustrated and concerned because so many Christian brothers and sisters deny the sufficiency of God's word. God's word is not to be taken lightly. God's word is not to be interpreted erroneously to fit our sense of comfort or our sense of what is more palpable to to, to implement into our family situation. God's word is not to be looked at in the light of some kind of human ingenuity. I mean, when we take God at his word, the truth will set us free. Period. Not the truth and, 
Do you believe that? Do you live it? Not just free from sin, but free from the bondage of sin. And you know what happens? We will love unconditionally. We will submit to one another in humility. We will give with a joyful heart. We will serve with gratitude. We will raise our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And husbands will love their wives as Christ loved the church. And wives will submit to their husbands as fitting to the Lord. And employees will work not to please men, but to please God. And employers will treat their employees with out favoritism like their master in heaven i mean all of us will submit to one another out of the reverence for christ how we take every thought captive to the obedience of jesus christ and the great deceiver the angel of light has so infiltrated our churches today to preach a gospel that is comfortable that is without conviction that is certainly without confrontation And my question for you this morning and for me is, where has he infiltrated your life, your family, our church, your marriage, your personal relationship? Satan redefines the roles of husbands and wives, and he manipulates the standard of strict obedience, and he changes the boundaries of what's right and what's maybe not as right and he redirects us to a worldly philosophy mixed with the word of god and so what happens is the weapon that we wield becomes dull and small and it stays in the scabbard and we rarely use it and what's the result Broken marriage, broken families, broken churches. We expect the world to be in a broken state. But the body of Christ cannot accept broken. And I don't mean broken families to bring them in. I mean broken doctrine. To make it suit our lives and make it easier for us to live in obedience. So the only power of God's truth, only the power of God's truth can set the prisoner free. And it's taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The word of God is living and active. And it's sharper than any double-edged sword and it penetrates dividing soul and spirit and it judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart we need surgery paul exhorts timothy in chapter 2 and verse 3 of second timothy he says i exhort you suffer hardship as a good soldier of jesus christ i think do you know why we compromise god's standard living Because living by it is hard, and it disrupts, and it hurts. But in the end, 
And while we, before we get there, there's great blessing and great joy in our families and in our churches, in our fellowships, when we live in obedience and submit and take every thought captive. It confronts, the Word of God confronts our own sense of right. It, it, it confronts our sense of fairness and our sense of comfort. And until we realize our hearts are wickedly, deceptively bent towards being deceived, we're, we're prone to it. We're ripe for it. We will compromise God's holy standard every time if we don't take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And so as 2 Timothy 2 and 15 says, be diligent to present yourselves approved, accurately handling the word of truth. May we be people who accurately handle the word of truth, our weapon of righteousness. Amen? Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. <coughs> your word is, is, is powerful to destroy every worldly sense of wisdom and ingenuity that we tend to blend with your pure, holy word. And so, Spirit of God, may we be people uncompromisingly saturated and taking every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ by knowing and using the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And we look forward to what you're going to do as you convict us and challenge us to better serve you with the foundation of the pure, holy Word. And so we thank you for the time to be together in this place, the beauty of your creation. And we look forward to what you're going to do as you continue to use us and mold us as the soldiers engaged in a battle. The spiritual forces of darkness. We thank you. We thank you for the great blessing of the standard of absolute truth that we can live by. May we be sanctified by your truth, because your word is truth. And we'll give you the thanks and praise and the glory for it in Christ's name. Amen. For now the weak can say that they are strong In the strength that God has given With shield of faith and belt of truth We'll stand against the devil's lies An army bold whose battle cry is love Reaching out to those in darkness Our call to war, to 
captive soul, but to rage against the captor with the sword that makes the wounded whole. We will fight with faith and valor when faced with trials on every side. We know the outcome is secure, and Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. See the cross where love and mercy meet, as the Son of God is stricken, and see his foes crushed beneath his feet for the conqueror has given and as a stone is rolled away and Christ emerges from the grave his victory march continues till the day every eye and heart shall see Spirit come, put strength in every stride, give grace for every hurdle, that we may run in faith to win the prize of a servant good and faithful. As saints of old still line the way, retelling triumphs of his calls and hunger for the day when with Christ we stand in glory as saints of old still line the way retelling triumphs of his grace we hear their calls and hunger for the day when with Christ we stand in glory next song is how firm a foundation ye saints of the lord is laid for your faith in his excellent word just like patrick was preaching to us from god's word that uh that is we have such a firm foundation to stand on if we but stand on his word why don't you stand with us as we sing this song
organ in verse 3. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace is all sufficient, shall be thy supply. The time of singing with a song that just reminds us of our great God and how he is truly the one that will reign and someday we will be with him and we will sing with the angels and, and cry out hail the lamb we'll call to him the one who was slain and say rule in power and the earth will reply you shall reign as the king of all kings and the lord of all lords what a day to look forward to The Lion of Judah, the Lamb that was will sing into heaven and evermore will reign. At the end of the age, when the earth will be, you'll gather the nations before you. And the eyes of all men will be fixed on the Lamb who was Death, see him rise. 
shouts of the seraphim echoing thunderously Yes, Ron? I think Ron is. <laughs> Hang on just a moment. We're going to wait just a second. Okay, we got the word. We're going to pray. I do encourage you guys, though, too, if you have prayer needs, to definitely um, get a hold of the prayer chain and let that get sent out um, so we can be praying for one another and holding one another up before our Lord and before his throne. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much just for, again, a beautiful day. Thank you for your word and that it is sufficient for all things. Um, God, as we look into your word this, this week in our own times of study, help us to see how your word can can work in our lives, how it can apply to our lives, and, and how we can, can uh, find our strength and our, our power through your word and through the things that you have given us. God, we pray for those who are not able to be here with us this morning, whether because they are sick or hurting or, or just uh, gone. We just ask that you would be with them and um, provide them with your comfort and with your care. <coughs> and Lord, as we go out into this week, may we honor you, may we give you praise, and may we come before your throne. Um, and lay our requests at your feet, knowing that, uh, that uh, your peace that passes all understanding will guard our hearts and minds through your son, Jesus Christ. In your son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yes. Yes.
Yeah. So again, if you couldn't hear that, that was uh, the meal train getting started for Sarah Ajero uh, starting on Wednesday. And if you want to be a part of that, if you're on the meal train, go ahead and, and look for that. And if you're not on the meal train um, or on the computer, talk to Joy um, after church here and she can get you a phone number of someone to contact. Okay, if we could, as a church, also pray. Netta just mentioned to me that her friend has been missing for five days, and we don't know where she is. What was what was your friend's name again? Friend's daughter. Emily Cox. She's 15 years old, Netta's friend's daughter. Can we uh, just, just pray for her as a family together right now? God, we just pray for this family uh, with the missing daughter, God. Um, I'm sure they're going through so much, and they're so scared. Um, I just pray that you would be with the family, that you would miraculously, miraculously step in, that you would uh, you would bring this girl back at such a young age, God, that you would give clarity of where she is, and that you would just step into this situation and be with them, God. We, as a church, unite to just pray when these needs come up. So pray for the Cox family right now. And we do pray for Sarah as well with her recovery, God, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Hold on, Steve has an announcement. season. 